Hey friends, welcome back to the Ray Johnson Leadership Podcast. I'm Brad Lominick, your host for this episode, and we appreciate you joining in, downloading, being a part of this community. Tell your friends about this podcast, not only this episode, but lots of other episodes. There's plenty of, uh, of now what we call the, uh, the backlist, the episodes that have come before, and they're timeless. So go back and listen to those. If you would, subscribe in your favorite podcast app, and uh, we'll continue to build this community and spread the word and, and uh, continue to equip leaders. That's what we're in the business of, is helping you be a healthy leader and uh, lead a thriving church. We want you to finish the race well. We want you to lead well on the journey. And so hopefully that happens this episode and many more. Mark Clark. Many of you are familiar with Mark Clark. He is a pastor. He is a uh, speaker. He's a thought leader. Mark was born and raised in Toronto and became a follower of Jesus in his late teen years. He's the founding and teaching pastor of Village Church which is a multi-site church of thousands in the Vancouver area, one of the most beautiful places on earth. He was listed as one of the 25 leaders to watch by Outreach Magazine in 2017. His sermons are downloaded hundreds of thousands of times per year in over 120 different countries. He's the author of the brand new book, The Problem of Jesus, Answering a Skeptic's Challenge to the Scandal of Jesus. He also wrote The Problem of God, Answering a Skeptic's Challenge to Christianity back in 2017. He resides in Vancouver with his wife, Erin, and their three daughters. He, uh, he loves connecting the message of Jesus to our culture, inspiring and training leaders, talking about apologetics, and working to see our world influenced by the gospel. So let's jump in on this conversation recently on the Thrive webinar, the weekly webinar with Mark Clark. Here it is. I am joined by a special guest today, and his name is Mark Clark. And for me, Mark is one of the best communicators, I think, on the planet today. He's one of the also the most insightful. And also, he's a guy that knows how to use the keys and produce books. And we're going to come to this later on. But uh, hey, Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing well, sir. Use the keys. I like that. Very interesting. Is that an Irish like uh, little phrase there? He knows how to use the keys. It's a reference to this digital age, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I got it. Okay, you're trying to be hip. Yeah. So, so everyone, you need to know about this Mark as well. Uh, not only is he a great communicator and all those things that I said, but also he, he's a pastor and he's a pastor in Vancouver. And uh, Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about the phenomenal church that you pastor? Even like a, a brief sort of how did all of that happen? And then throw in your family as well. Just Just give us everything. Right. Well, I got three daughters and uh, a wife, uh, and uh, it, it. Yeah, we we moved from Toronto to Vancouver um, in uh, 2004. My wife and I kind of packed everything up, left everybody we knew, all of our family, all of our friends, moved out to Vancouver without a clue what we were doing. Uh, I came out here to do some school, and my intent was to move overseas. Uh, to the UK and do some more school. And God said, no, I want you to stay in Vancouver and plant a church. And we were like, well, that, you know, that's not ideal because it's not like Canada is like full of Christians that are ready to be like, Woo, Jesus is great. So very post-Christian culture, um, you know, probably a generation or two ahead of the US. So I like to say when I'm talking to Americans, I come to you from the future. Uh, of where your country is going in regard to post-Christian values, worldview, ideas, behaviors. Uh, so we planted this, this church with 16 people in my house and just said, what if we taught the Bible, told people about Jesus, uh, told them he's the hero of their life, and, and the one common denominator in their life to every disaster they have is them, not other people, uh, but Jesus can be the hero. And we just started preaching that, and people started to show up and get their life changed and come to know Jesus. And the church over the last 11 years now has just grown into multiple campuses across Canada, actually. Um we now have campuses four or five around the Vancouver, one in Winnipeg, one in Toronto, one in Calgary, most of which are probably cities maybe you've never been to, Andrew, but uh, uh, they are cities across the nation. Calgary, and I have stood outside one of the cinemas that you use. 
Oh, there you go. Perfect. So, uh, so which is fascinating to be honest, because in our first year, there's a video of me getting up in front of our church and saying, our desire is to actually plant churches in the major cities across our country. Uh, and we were like year one budget was like 25 grand and we had like 40 people. So it's pretty cool to see what God has done, how faithful he's been to the original vision we had 11 years ago. And now it's all playing out now. So it's, it's been really cool. So anyway, so yeah, so I pastor a church called Village Church and uh, amazing staff, amazing team, and God's doing some really cool things. So your multi-site church, Mark, you mainly do that through video. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, we're all we're all video. I record on a Sunday in front of, uh, uh, you know, a few hundred people. And then that's at like super early eight o'clock. You got to be really, really Christian to get up that early to go to church. And then every other service at that site and all the other sites is that video from the week before put up on movie screens or, you know, if there's a, you know, a couple of our campuses meet in venues and the screen comes down and all of that. So that's wonderful. So, uh, Mark, what has ministry been like in this season? Uh, obviously, Canada has been in quite a tight lockdown. How's that worked out for you? Uh, well, I mean, it hasn't been ideal. We didn't, you know, Andrew, we don't get into this job to become professional epidemiologists or, uh, or video YouTube stars. It's probably not why I signed up to go to Bible college and seminary and, and feel a call to plant the church. It's because we love people. And uh and that's kind of what's been taken from us a little bit over the last year. So it's been tough. Um, in Canada, yeah, we're not we're not cowboys, right? We we kind of listen when the government says stay in your house. We're like, okay, you know. And then I look down to the U.S. and you guys are like, I'm not staying in no house. <laughs> I do what I want, you know. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So no, we pretty well uh, we we haven't gathered as a church since March. Uh, so so uh, we've been all video, all online. None of our physical campuses have been able to gather and that and that's been really tough so um obviously it's kind of been a pivot you know we i like to say like it's really weird we went from being a church in a sense to being a uh a television production ministry everything from kids ministry to sundays to community groups everything is now how do we put it on video and communicate to our people which isn't necessarily the skill set pastors got into this job to do. Um, I always loved that world. It was part of my background. But when I get to speak with other leaders and pastors, I'm sympathetic to the fact that, you know, now all of church ministry has become, how do we put that on video? And so it's been quite a, quite a shift, but God's been moving, man. Like people have been meeting Jesus. We just did a baptism last Saturday, 50 people got baptized and the stories were crazy. So it was like, I've never been to a church before in my life. My dad's never been to a church before in his life. He was a psychic. This one guy just emailed me. He was a psychic. And then I was a psychic because my dad was. And we were totally into it for like our whole lives. We met Jesus, never been to a church before in life. And then they're sitting on the beach getting baptized this past Saturday. They've never been to a physical location yet. So if we doubt that Jesus can use online stuff to reach people you know we shouldn't everyone you want to reach is online god saving psychics i never saw that coming that's <laughs> i'm sorry that, that was an area oh that was sorry. a really that was that was good that was uh-huh uh-huh Bart, is have you have you done anything in this season because everyone t- can't wait till it gets back to normal you know i'm going to get a vaccination and a vacation and then we'll be back to normal but is there anything you've learned through the season you go, we're going to keep that going? Actually, we stumbled on a genius method or an idea. Is there anything happening? Yeah, well, definitely online church. Uh, we hadn't really started online church yet, but we were about six to nine months away um, from doing that. And so that's one of the things that obviously we're going to keep. It's like we got to be able to reach people online. And because what we've seen is people who not only like um, – it's not like they're just like, oh, they're watching content, right? So one of the things we always look at is like, okay, people, you know, downloading sermons or whatever, that's like tip of the spear stuff. We got to move them from the front door to the living room, to the kitchen of our church and be like, okay, are you in a community group? Do you give? Do you serve? Are you a member? 
And so we're moving, constantly moving people deeper and deeper down into deeper levels of commitment. And uh, when you look at that and you see the amount of people that have said, you know, I want to be in a group. I want to become a member. I want to give or whatever. It's crazy. You couldn't plant a church. If we planted a location this year that had that many people grow into it, we'd be like, sell it. We'd be on the front page of, you know, every outreach magazine that you can produce. It would be like crazy. So to take these online people and go, no, this is actually church. And this is what it looks like. And this is how you get into deeper levels of commitment. So we're going to keep that obviously. And we're going to staff it better. I think most churches, unlike Bayside, of course, you guys are always ahead of the game, but I think we got caught a little bit by surprise. And so we're like, we're like, who's going to lead this online church? We just pointed out a guy. We're like, you go, you know, so he's been doing it ever since. And he's like, I actually need a team who knows what they're doing, who can read data and who can pastor and be on camera well and all that. So we're going to start to really resource that uh, definitely better this year. So. And Mark, some of your top tips to um, communicating to the camera. We all love, you know, a congregation and the feedback, yeah. you know, laughing at our jokes. Watch, just uh, give us a few, your top tips on how we can be like Mark Clark. Oh, yeah, right. Well, yeah, yeah, right. Well, you don't want to be like me because I probably yell a bit too much. But, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you want to try to make it um, – intimate. So, so in our setting, we realize that people are sitting at home watching this on their TVs. So having me necessarily be on a stage, talking to seats, not making eye contact with the camera doesn't really work because they're sitting in their living room. And so we wanted to try to create something. So what we, one of the shifts we made was we put me in a studio. I literally sit down on a chair, which I never do normally. And I, I got my desk, I got my Bible, I have a big TV beside me and I'm just like circling verses and I'm just right into the camera for the whole 40 minutes and just trying to, you just gotta try to keep the passion up. Try to try to get the energy from the camera person if, if you have to, you know? If you're making them laugh or making them go, yeah, you know, you're probably on point. Um, but really trying to keep that energy level high because you lose 40% of the energy as it crosses over video and really not treating it like, Hey, I'm looking out at this audience, but you're watching me. It's like, you're my audience. I'm here with you. Let's keep it intimate. Um, but don't hesitate to build the sermon similar to what you normally do. Tell the jokes, you know, just don't talk over them. Let them have a laugh or whatever. Try to keep people engaged through your energy, showing that you actually love this stuff and that you're passionate about it and you didn't lose your passion simply because there's no audience there, right? In the end of the day, Andrew, I mean, not to sound super spiritual because I know we want to be pragmatic. We have an audience of one. And the other thing is, the other thing is, is um, we have to remember, I remember I, I, I was reading a preacher a while ago. He said these words. He said, if I show up at my church and not one person is there, would I preach my sermon? And he said, yes, I would, because there are principalities and powers that need to hear that Jesus Christ is reigning on a throne over the universe. There is always an audience that needs to be told about the proclamation of the gospel. And so if nothing else, if you don't care about the camera person, you're preaching to demons. So make it good. And make it about Jesus. Fantastic. So, Mark, sort of moving towards your book, uh, you're passionate. Uh, you're passionate about your wife, passionate about your family, passionate about Canada. But I've always found this: you're passionate about God's word. You know, unapologetically, you are just, and you're passionate about people, and you manage to connect those things too well, very, very well. And you, and you said earlier on, like you really, you just want to like go to the UK and study some more. Just talk to us about your love for God's word and digging into God's word, because that's where these books are coming from. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I got, you know, Augustine said, the Bible is the face of God for us now. And to be honest with you, I met Jesus in some way. Many people meet Jesus in the context of church or an evangelistic um, event, 
surrounded by other Christians or maybe with, you know, their family or whatever. I didn't have any of those experiences. I grew up in a non-Christian home. I, a, a guy talked to me about Jesus, but I like met Jesus literally through reading the Bible. Like the Bible had the power. So, so, you know, Carl Bart talked about, you have the word, right? And then you have the word behind the word like the big W Jesus. And, and that's constantly, I'm trying to read the Bible to meet the word because the word, you know, Jesus, God himself is speaking through the text uh, at every time and place. And so I literally, as the kid smoking a pack of cigarettes in between parties, smoking weed, being dumb, I met Jesus in the scriptures. And for two years before I ever walked into a church, I just read the Bible. I would just like sit outside my school with my baggy pants and my chain attached to my wallet, you know, cause I didn't want anyone to steal my 14 bucks. I would just like read the Bible, smoke my, hang out, walk up to guys at like one in the morning, just be like, you need to meet Jesus. And it was all through the power of the text and it formed my theology. And so when I preach now, you know, there's people who are like, why do you spend three and a half years going through the book of Matthew in a modern day church that shouldn't work? And I always tell them because, listen, at the end of the day, when these people's lives fall apart, okay, when their kid gets hit because they backed up their car or their spouse gets a diagnosis, what is the thing that's going to put steel in their spine? It ain't going to be my funny stories. It ain't going to be my little illustrations. It ain't going to be everything that starts with the letter G and tie it up with a poem. It's going to be the text. The word is going to be the thing that sets their life on fire and gives them encouragement and comfort when their life falls apart. So I need to not only tell them what to think, I need to tell them how to think and how I got there. So I need to, them to understand all of this is coming from the text. And so, you know, for me, the passion is, this is the way you're going to build biblical worldviews. It's the way you're going to build theology, philosophy, but also behavior in life uh, is by understanding the authority of the Bible versus the authority of whatever cultural moment we're in. Because if you look to the cultural moment to define what you believe, here's the flaw in that kind of thinking. Um, the cultural moment right now in California is vastly different than in Nigeria. And it's vastly different than Saudi Arabia. So which cultural moment and which cultural expression are you going to believe? For instance, about sexuality or about loving your neighbor. Is it the California version or is it the Saudi Arabian version? The biblical story transcends all of those transnational borders and starts to go, there's something else going on here. And that's what I want to take my cue from. Fantastic, Mark. So, uh, you're communicating, but also you're start, you've been doing it through the text. You've been doing it through books and you've been writing. You wrote The Problem of God. And I want to say to everybody out there, get your hands on The Problem of God. Um, it is one of those books I would think is one of the most accessible books on apologetics. And yet it dives so deep into it. So make sure and get that. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for your church. And I would really encourage you to get this in front of your church. But also if you're a parent, especially of a high schooler, and we talked about this recently at Bayside, if your high schooler is pushing back, don't freak out. They're just thinking. It's a sign that God has given them a brain. Give them the answers. Walk the journey with them. So get them with the, the problem of God. But then, Mark, you've just brought out the problem of Jesus. So tell us, what is the problem and how have you solved it? Why, why write this book? You know, you've cracked it. Come on, tell us. No, I've cracked it. No, uh, I mean, obviously, growing up in a, in a, in a non-Christian home, it, Jesus became the issue. Um, and in our culture, you have a lot of people who might vaguely believe in God as a concept, but vague spirituality is not the role or the goal of Christian mission. My job is to not get people to believe in God as a concept. I have to do something far more Christocentric than that, which is Jesus Christ specifically, uh, who he was, how, why he lived, what he did at the cross, the resurrection, all that. So uh, we have a culture that'll be like, oh, Jesus, he's my homeboy. He's a good guy. So I try to capture like the scandal that no, no, in the modern world, the person, the work of Jesus needs to scandalize you, both the believer and the skeptic. 
And so uh, it came out of, you know, the word problem, of course, you know, I get a lot of people <laughs> who go on like the Facebook page of it and they're like, the problem's not with Jesus, it's with you. And it's like, you didn't read it. You don't even, I literally defined the word problem at the beginning. Clearly you're not a math student because the word problem can be used in many different ways. It's an intricate problem to be solved, like a, a question to be figured out, right? So yes, there's no problem with Jesus. Um, but the problem of Jesus is that he's, he's something we have to crack because you just can't go through your life trying to find joy, purpose, meaning, and happiness through beauty, relationships, success, family, money, power, because all of them will let you down. So when you're, when you're, when you're sitting there saying, I've tried to define all things through this and they let me down, what's the ultimate solution? Jesus is the ultimate solution. He transcends all those things. So what I wanted to present to the world, both the skeptic and the believer was, look, you're looking in the wrong place. But it's not Jesus as like archetype concept. He actually existed. Here's how the gospels work. Here's what discipleship is. Here's our miracles legitimate in our modern day. Did Jesus claim to be God? What did they, you know, the parables, how do they work? All of these things. I try to basically say, what's the one-stop shop of everything I got on Jesus for both the skeptic and the believer? That's what the book is. So it just came out two weeks ago. So, okay. And who's the book for you talked about this. You seem to you be talking about it's for the skeptic and it's also for the believer. Yeah. Well, I I think I think the believer is going to see a, a different a different angle on Jesus in this thing and and also be able to get the inspiration and the courage to follow him in all things. Like, what what, what is the Christian life? The Christian life isn't just about victory. It's about obedience. Well, who are you being obedient to? You don't just get Jesus as savior. You get him as Lord. But what does that mean in your daily life in regard to your sex life and your money and the way you do your family? And how, what does following Jesus even look like in the modern world? Um, and so that's what I mean by, of course, you know, the great commission is to make disciples, right? 269 times the word disciple is used in the gospels. Three times the word Christian is used in the New Testament. Discipleship of Jesus is the paradigm of Christianity. So the question is, that's not just something, well, I said a prayer, so now I'm a Christian, now I move on to something else. It's like, no, 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 this is... You know the you know you know the great uh, the great commission where Jesus says you're supposed to teach them. He doesn't say teach them all that I commanded you. He says teach them to obey all that I commanded you. That is a vastly different task that we are to be people who obey in all things. Um, and so that's that's a lifelong journey. Is my point. That's not a skeptic becomes a Christian now. He doesn't need the gospel. He doesn't need to figure Jesus out anymore. It's like as you know figuring Jesus out and all the nuance of what it means to follow and worship him as treasure is a lifelong journey. So it's the, for the believer in that sense. And it'll reframe things for them. Like for instance, if I was to walk up to the regular Christian on the street and I, and I said to them, what do you think if I, if you could summarize like what the one central thing Jesus was all about, what was his main center of the center of the center message what would it be? And then people would give me different things. He was about the forgiveness of sins or loving your neighbor, whatever. But the reality is, as I talk about in one of the chapters, he was about the kingdom of God. That was the main thing he was talking about. Most Christians, not even dawn on them that that's a thing. But all scholarship, left, right, center goes, we, we're not going to tell you necessarily what the kingdom of God is, but we know this is what he was about. And so I talk about that, and then I talk about what I think he meant by it. So I think Christians will be challenged by it and help them give it a, a defense for why you can trust the Gospels. Uh, so I think the, the Christians that are getting back to me are like, man, this is changing the way I view the Gospels. It's changing the way I view Jesus. It's changing the way I look at death. Because, you know, I, in the whole chapter on resurrection at the end, I'm like, look, if this actually happened, like, Andrew, if the resurrection literally happened 2,000 years ago, not as like a metaphor of Jesus rose from the dead in your heart. No, 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 no. I'm not even getting out of bed on a Sunday morning for that. I'm talking about he really rose from the dead. If that really happened, you don't even, you don't even have to fear death. Like, this is the worst it gets. 
in a sense, because he really rose and there's a, he looks at us and he says, if you believe in me, you'll never die, which means the millisecond after you're dead, you're alive and fully alive in him. And D.L. Moody, you know, he said, one day you're going to read a newspaper that I've died. Don't believe it for a second. I'll be more alive than ever. If we really believe that, we got we nothing to fear. We don't have to fear sacrifice, suffering, uh, our own mortality, uh, our families get, you know, all of these things. It gives us something in our souls that gets us up in the morning to go, I can face this. Anyway, so that's that's why it's both for the believer and the unbeliever, because really it's for, it's like, there's not Christian and non-Christian problems. There's human problems. And Jesus is the solution of those things. Excellent. Mark, talk to us about your introduction um, and you talk about, does this offend you and the whole root of scandal or scandalized? And we were talking about this two weekends ago, just at um, Bayside, when Jesus spoke to John the Baptist, sent the text message back to him, blessed is the one who is not offended or scandalized because of me. How do we, Mark, in this politically correct age where no one wants to be offended or no one wants to offend, how do we communicate Jesus to a world uh, from a guy who clearly was offensive? Yeah, um, I think I think we have to constantly go. Uh, sometimes things that don't feel good are right, right? So, so like, like sometimes I don't know if you've ever had to fire anyone at Bayside. Probably not, but I've had to fire people. Okay, so. Firing people never feels good, but sometimes it's the right thing to do. And so be very careful to let, don't, don't confuse legitimate skepticism with repulsion, meaning I don't believe in Jesus. Why? Well, you know, archaeological digs tell me he never existed. Okay, that's evidential thinking. But I don't like the concept of hell because when I'm sitting around the table with my friends, it doesn't feel right. That's not a legitimate skepticism. That's just, you don't like the idea. It doesn't sit right with you, but there's a difference between those two things. And what we've confused as a culture is repulsion or gut responses with legitimate reasons not to believe something. And I think what we've done is we've confused the search for truth with Let's make sure everybody can get along around the Thanksgiving dinner table. So we we that we we make a trade, and I'm saying it's a bad trade because I can guarantee you, if your uncle came around the dinner table and started spewing stuff about flat Earth or whatever, you're probably going to go, bro. There's pictures. Everyone, calm down. You know, you're not going to just going to go. Well, you know, I think that's legitimate, Uncle Joe. Pass the gravy. Like, there's a point where we got to go, guys. Truth is actually something we got to go after versus, well, you don't, it doesn't land with you. It doesn't feel good, you know, at, at first glance. So we should abandon it. That's terrifying, especially when it comes any take any field at a university, science, psychology, philosophy. If they dealt with things like that, we'd never get anywhere. We would have never questioned Newtonian physics. And now we got quantum theory. We got things that exist here and there. I mean, it's crazy. We always have to be questioning, doubting our doubts, and at least going in and going, why do I have these doubts? Why is it that I don't like this? Is it because of where I live? Is it because I'm reading the prompter of the culture I'm just a part of versus, man, this is actually a legitimate thing that I got to look at. And I think that's the scary moment we're living in. We have a lot of people reading the prompter of culture putting Christianity on trial for stuff, A, that's just a product of the cultural moment they're in, but B, that has nothing to do with Christianity. Just make sure you're not rejecting Christianity based on Christians fumbling the ball versus Jesus himself. I'm constantly trying to wrestle people in, you know, in post-Christian Canada away from like, okay, so you want to reject Christianity? Why? And they're like, well, because of the hypocrites in the church. And it's like, okay, fair enough. But I think it was Solzhenitsyn years ago gave this image. He said, if I'm going along a path and I'm going home and you ask me how to get home and I point you that direction and I'm stumbling along that path drunkenly, does that mean it's not the way home? No, I gave you the truth. I'm just fumbling it as I try to get there. 
And I think people got to recognize that Christianity is about Jesus, 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 and only secondarily about how the people trying to follow him are actually doing in the world. Great, great, great response, Mark. What are the chapters in the book that you're finding are getting the most traction that people are, you know, you talked about, yes, the historical Jesus, reliability of the Gospels. What's right. a lot of traction, Mark, for you? Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of people talking about discipleship stuff because I think we read, so there's a chapter called the problem of discipleship, and it's about getting Jesus as teacher and how every great story has, you know, go to Luke Skywalker, go to hunger games, go to, you know, Lord of the Rings. Everything's got a protagonist who reaches a problem and he finds a mentor and the mentor tells him what to do. And then he has one direction to go or whatever. This is like, this is, these are stories built into the human psyche. And Jesus, of course, comes along not only as a sage who gives you ideas and leaves, he's the ongoing Obi-Wan Kenobi, Gandalf, whatever in your life going, no, this is actually how to do it. This is how to be truly human. This is, and I talk about the idea of discipleship is always happening, whether you're a skeptic or not. At every moment, you're being discipled. It's not a choice. Uh, you're being discipled by the empires that you live in, by the worlds that you live in, by here's what power is, here's what money is, here's what fame is, whatever. And we're, we need to be um, discipled out of that world, not only reformed into the, the, the kingdom, but deformed out of every other kingdom that our heart attaches to. Um, I think people are, are loving the idea of um, the problem of loving God chapter, where I talk about the only way to ever rid yourself of a sin or an addiction or a problem, whatever, is you, you can't just get rid of an idol in the human heart. You actually have to replace it with something more powerful. And so this concept that, you know, we go along and we just tell people, even as churches, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. And everyone thinks Christianity is a bunch of stuff you don't do. That's a negative version you got to give people the gravitational pull toward a god who is so amazing and beautiful that he trumps the sin that we love that's the only way to ever get out of these things in life so people are really you know engaging with that stuff and going this stuff's the stuff that's changing my life so those two chapters are, are landing with people so far okay so we're dropping jesus mark into a cancel culture and a lot of people try to cancel jesus um what would sort of advice would you have for us as Christian leaders at this moment in time? How do we navigate this cancel culture? How do we respond graciously but confidently? Any, any comments from the great mind of Mark? Yeah, right. Mark. Man, can, yeah, cancel culture. I, so I was thinking about this the other day. So obviously cancel culture in some ways, there's a piece of it where I look at it and I say, some of it, depending on what version, can be uh, a corrective to uh, maybe power structures that don't work or, you know, voices that have never been heard before. And people are at least starting to go maybe out of sheer fear. Um, you know, I'm going to get canceled. Uh oh, I better be careful with the ladies around the office or, you know, whatever. Like there's there's an actual probably legitimate corrective to some of it and the fear that it puts into people to go, man, I, I should probably be more appropriate in these, you know, ventures in life. But on the flip side, the beauty of the gospel, you know, it's funny. I, I thought of this yesterday. Um, there are certain Bible passages, Andrew, that, you know, growing up, you never would have thought would be like the controversial ones. Right. So like there, there's stuff that, that now they've become controversial. So I was thinking yesterday, I'm like, in a cancel culture philosophy where you never are allowed to live past mistakes you've made, and I'm not talking about like hardcore, like you, you understand, just mistakes, fumbles, things you've said or done. Um, you can't live past them. And yet Jesus comes along and he goes, you got to forgive 70 times seven. The, the beauty and depth of forgiveness of the gospel makes cancel culture almost it's a critique on cancel culture because it says you actually at the end of the day have you can't hold people for who they used to be all the time like it's a good thing tiktok didn't exist when i was 17 or i wouldn't be a pastor right now like it would have been bad man like there's no because people would draw some video up that i did and some dumb thing i said and i'd be stuck there i mean andrew 
for the first three years I was preaching at youth group, don't tell anybody this, I'd be smoking cigarettes out back. I'd, I'd butt it. And then I'd get up and preach. Like this is, I, I wasn't ready for any of this. I would like, you know, and so this stuff, you know, we're all in, in such a journey in life of development toward these goals. And that's part of what gives the soul meaning and to hold people and freeze them in time and say, this is what you said or did at this particular moment and ergo for the rest of time, you will be held for this. In a sense, it's almost, it's almost karma and it's contrary to the gospel, which says in Jesus Christ, we get what we don't deserve and he gets what we deserve. And we're living out of a culture right now that just wants to, you get what you deserve for every mistake you've made and you're frozen in time and you will pay for it until your dying day. And the gospel's like, man, if, if God, if God only had perfect people to work with, there'd be not many around. You wouldn't get David. You wouldn't get Moses. You wouldn't get Paul. You wouldn't get Abraham. Abraham's, you know, jacking out his wife. Moses is doing crazy stuff. I mean, they're all a mess. They're a complete disaster. And the gospel goes, yeah, okay. You know what, though? Jesus is good. And he, there's grace here. Great. We're sin increase, grace increase all the more. Like these concepts, the concept of grace blows all of this up and at least pushes back against it. You know, the, um, the uh, parable in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus uh, pays everybody the same, even though the one guy shows up at like seven in the morning and the other guy shows up at like four. And then at five, he pulls everybody together and he pays them all the exact same. And the guy's like, well, this doesn't even, what are you doing? You're unjust. These are the mathematics of grace. They make no sense, but they upend karma and they upend what everybody deserves. And I think uh, we at least have to be fused with that in the context of the culture that we're in right now. So it can be, it can be dangerous for sure. Um, Mark, fabulous stuff. And you're, you're talking about culture. Let, let's, I, I want to throw this to you. So in, in our conversation, you've mentioned Karl Barth, Augustine. And I know you're a big fan of Daniel Day-Lewis as an actor. You've been doing podcasts recently in Hollywood. How, how do you like keep one, all of this theology in the person of Jesus, and then also very much up to date in culture. How do you do that practically? What are you reading, watching? And because it just seems to flow. And why is that important to, to you as well? Um, well, on, on, the, on the missiological side, we're always needing to, you know, Jesus became flesh. That's what the incarnation is about. So he didn't just like yell down from a cloud, he became one of us. And so the church, needs to recognize that it becomes part of a culture it exists within and everything we're doing is like that's the world out there that's what we so it's no good saying we have all the answers and we're sitting in church and you know hopefully you can come find us it's like no 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 forget forget you know you ray kurt all the guy you guys are brilliant and it's like what if your whole church was good at evangelism and people were coming to Jesus, not at the nine and the 11 service, but at 4 PM on a Wednesday in their living room. Like that's what the picture of the church is. And so in order to do that, we are part of the culture that we exist within. That's just the nature. And so we got to recognize that people are already there. You know what the most here, here's something humbling, Andrew, how many hours do we, you and I work on these sermons? Okay. Tirelessly. I got books and exegesis. I learned Greek for three years. I study the Bible. I preach these sermons. I craft them. And you know what the most watched video on the village church website is the one where I interact with Matthew McConaughey and talk about, and I didn't even prep for this. I just sit in a room and a guy goes, Hey, Pastor Mark reacts, put in this thing in your ear, watch this video. And I just rip off the top of my head this is the most watched stuff that we do all right like it's offensive to my seminary professors at this point but this is the world we exist within and we got to show how the gospel is this beautiful thing that affects that real world that exists out there because i can guarantee you your friends aren't sitting around talking about half the stuff we end up talking about as christians thinking these things are the ultimate importance it's like we got to make the bible one of my professors said when I was growing up, it's a sin to make the Bible boring. And 
that's why we need to bring both these worlds together. I think Billy Graham back in the day said, you got to have a Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other. You got to bring these worlds together uh, so that the gospel actually impacts them. So I think we need to be students of the scriptures and, in a, and, and students of the culture. But not only that, I think as leaders, we need to do one more because saying students of the culture, that's pretty general. Like, what do you mean? Biology or like whatever. And, and of course, I think there, there's a place for that. But I think sociology I think preachers would be better preachers if they were better psychologists and sociologists. I think if people studied the way people thought. So, you know, you asked what I was reading. I think one of the best evangelism books people can read has nothing to do with evangelism. It's Gladwell's uh, Tipping Point and Outliers. I think social pandemics and how they tip um, is, is a fascinating conversation in regard to evangelism. Um, because it says, how do you make ideas actually get into people so they're interested in them and they start to spread? Well, that's literally what our job is. And then we're like, okay, here's the Hebrew parsing. This, this thing is nominative, vocative, first person, plural. It's like, you know, whatever. It's like, okay, how do you make an idea spread through a culture? That's a fascinating question. So let's get into the psychology about how human beings work. Let's get it, you know, whatever. So I think some of this stuff, whether it's psychology or sociology, needs to inform how we're leaders. So, you know, I'm a little OCD like that. Like I, I was reading a book on population decline the other day and realizing that one of the things the church in the West needs to crack is the ability to do ministry cross-culturally because Certainly in Canada, immigration is a massive way that we stir the economy and get our population up. We're 37 million people lined up on the border of America. So I don't know if that's like us all trying to keep you out or you just, you know, whatever. I don't know what it is, but it's like we have to, this isn't like a white, yo, hey, Christianity, it's the face of white people in North America. This is a global picture. Christians are mostly you know, Christianity moved to Latin America, Africa, and Asia in regard to numbers. And if we're all just sitting around still doing the same stuff we were doing, you know, 40 years ago for what we thought was North American Christian culture, that's not going to work anymore. So how does that impact what we do with languages? How does that impact the way we deal with reaching immigrants? All of this kind of stuff. In the next 10, 15, 20, we got to crack this stuff as the church or we're going to be dead. Or we're going to be dead. You all heard that from Mark Clark. Okay, everybody. <laughs> dead. I love it, Mark. Love that, it. That's all. That's all you heard me say in the last five minutes, isn't it? You were thinking about what cute tweet you were going to do, and then all you heard was me say "dead," and then you woke up. Mark Clark. Okay, uh, Mark. Let's talk about your leadership here for a second, and 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 coach everyone. So through the craziness of the last year, you've been a leader for many years, but I was talking to someone uh, recently and they were just saying, I confer on all of you an honorary doctorate in leadership. If you have survived the last year, what, what would be, the, what would be the, the thing, one or two things that you've picked up in the last year that have been really important that you would coach everyone with? Um, I read an article yesterday that said after 9-11, it, um, the pastors in New York City uh, had a really good year. They, they were busy. They felt like they were doing something meaningful. It was tiring, but, but they, you know, they survived it. Some of them even thrived in it. Uh, year two and three, the percentage of men and women who quit ministry went through the roof. And I think if we aren't careful, this year for all of us has been similar in it's like, you know, we're not in Manhattan, but we're in our own places and we got busy and we figured stuff out and it's been stressful and anxiety, whatever. I think if we're not careful over the next two or three years, we're going to see such a spike in people quitting ministry uh, because they've just been either beat up or they just feel ill-equipped and they're just going to go do other stuff. So I would say persevere, uh, you know, 
it's like marriage, right? It's like, it's like nobody on their, the day of their wedding, people are usually jacked. The question is not whether you can get married. Any dummy can get married. Uh, the question is, where's your marriage on the last day? Not the first day. Um, and so the question is, can you get to that last day and be healthy and balanced and, you know, the thing, with family and work and all that stuff um, and, and make sure you're valuing the right things. Get, make sure that in the midst of that, you're getting your identity from Jesus, not from social media or people. If, because if you get your identity, if your identity is not rooted as like you are beloved in Christ, no matter your failures, uh, then every guy who tweets about you and every person who criticizes you is going to put you in a corner. You're going to twist your hair around and you're going to question, you know, your own existence and your calling in life. That is not good. That's not healthy. Um, so you have to have an identity that's not rooted in your performance, but in his performance for you. And once that's solid, then all of us are just doing our best, you know, and going, Hey, under Jesus, I'm going to try this and fail at that and do this and do that. I'm going to, do what I can. Uh, but I'm going to be able to get through this stuff and come out the other side of it versus having, you know, having it kill me, have the criticize, you know, criticism kill me or the work or whatever. So. Okay. Mark, just to wrap all of this up, just a couple of quick fire questions. What do you do to relax? You're a passionate guy. What do you do to relax? Uh, I hang out with my girls, hang out with my wife, watch movies, um, golf and read. I love introducing my kids to all my favorite movies and music. Like it's a big, it's a big thing. And then we, and then I make them write essay. Like <laughs> we watched, we watched, no, no, check it, check it. No. Cause they're homeschool, Andrew. Come on. So I gotta, you know, you gotta make it. So I'll get them to watch like the top 10 best films of the nineties. And then I'll be like, choose one and give me 500 words. And so it's fun, man. And we get into cinematic critique on this and that and actors and directors and producers and screenwriters and they love it, man. So we, we lean into the arts a bit and then, yeah, I love, I love golf and reading. That's pretty much it. Okay. Come on, man. Uh, your favorite movie. Uh, of all time. Uh, I think the best movie ever made is probably Schindler's list. Uh, I, I think, I think Godfather one and two and Shawshank are the, my top, my top four. And then Jaws is in there. I'd say that's my top five. And their favorite actor still Daniel Day, Lewis? He, he disappears. I remember when I went and saw Lincoln twice and I went online, I said, well, I've seen Lincoln twice and they say Daniel Day-Lewis is in it, but I've never seen him. And then people started commenting, he plays Lincoln, Mark. Don't, didn't you know this? <laughs> Just like, Nobody disappears like him. But I think if you're talking working actors, Christian Bale is probably the best there is right now. That's right? good. Uh, and then uh, favorite, favorite book in the Bible. Come on. Gotta wet <laughs> favorite book in the Bible. Uh, I'd probably go the Gospel of John, to be honest. I'm preaching through it right now. It's just brilliant on like four different. Every sentence has like six different angles to it. Okay. Uh, if there was... Uh, one band that has disbanded, okay, or dead, they're gone, okay? If you could go and see any band live that's yeah. no longer or artist. I mean, you got to go the Beatles, right? I mean... Great studio band. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying to be able to live the rest of your life and go, I saw the Beatles is pretty, pretty important. Uh, but, you know, maybe like Elvis... Yeah. You know, that'd be pretty sweet. But of course, I thought you were going to say best band. I was going to say you too, of course, to, you know, feed into your little Irish just ego there. <laughs> your favorite music, Mark? What, what, what do you just love in music? Like rock and roll stuff. Yeah. And then your favorite, like, you know, uh, not Christian, non-Christian book. Okay. So what, you know, fiction, non -fiction. Wow. Wow. These are interesting. Okay. So I, uh, I love the novels of a writer. He's a Jewish writer called Chaim Potok. His name is C-H-A-I-M Potok, P-O-T-O-K. He has a book called The Chosen. He has a book called The Gift of Asher Lev. I'm telling you, this is like true, brilliant writing. And then like Cormac McCarthy. So if I'm going to read like novels, I, I find personally, I can't get as into like 
the like standard fare. Like I need to kind of be reading something that's like, oh, this guy's teaching me how to write sentences that like are mind boggling. Uh, so that's why I lean into those kinds. Okay. So I want you to do this. Everyone follow Mark on Twitter. And then Mark, you're going to do this like once a month for us. My best, okay. month, my best books of the month, all of that stuff. Love Keep it. Love it. <laughs> hey, Mark, uh, John Volinsky here. Um, hey, so your book, what's the best way for people to get it? What would you like them to do? Yeah, that, that's great. Um, the, the best way, just jump on amazon.com and order it. The problem of Jesus. Um, and, uh, and then you can go on the website if you want to know more about it, but all that information's on amazon.com right there. Uh, probably the easiest way to get it is there. And then there's a website, the problem of where there's like a video introduction where I do a two minute trailer for it. So awesome. And then it would help, uh, for people to do some reviews, right? Get the reviews yeah. on Amazon. Yeah. That's the thing I started looking today. I'm like, oh yeah. So getting reviews and putting even one sentence is super helpful for algorithms so that more eyeballs can see the book. And so um, it's starting to get there a little bit, but I know on amazon.com, it can use some more reviews and uh, hopefully good ones, but I'll take, take any. <laughs> All right. So everyone get out there, buy the book, leave a review, help this to get into more hands around the country. So thanks. John. Great job, by the way, great hey. interview today hey. and uh, Schindler's list. That's that's my top two. So good oh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, not necessarily like a rewatchable. Where right. No. no I know. Weekend and pop, you know, pop the drinks out. But it's uh, it's a very important film. So. Yeah. Tells a great story too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just I'm just saying that. By the way, everyone. Liam Neeson. Thank you. Um, and so so John, stay, stay with us. Mark, answer this question, and then John, jump in. Mark, where can everyone get your sermons and stuff like that? And then you commenting on Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, uh, probably the easiest way to get the sermon is go on the podcast app and look for village church or just type in my name. And I, you know, every week those things populate every Monday morning. They're up there. Oh, fantastic. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks again to, to Mark, Pastor Mark Clark. You can find him online, pastormarkclark.com, Pastor markclark.com and uh, you can also find him on the social medias so uh you know look him up there he's a great follow and he's uh he's a friend of bayside a friend of thrive and a friend of ray johnston so those are uh, those are good companies good good circles to be navigating in uh like i said earlier please subscribe please download Please uh, continue to get this in your in your uh, favorite podcast app on a regular basis by subscribing, and tell your friends. We would love for you to review on on uh, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, and stay in touch. Keep connected to us. We will continue to bring you great conversations and great interviews, great uh, topics that will help you be a leader who is leading well, and that's our goal here. So, on behalf of Ray Johnson and the entire team. Thanks for listening. Thanks for leaning in. And we'll talk to you on the next episode of the Ray Johnson Leadership Podcast.